This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapists right now, and they're saying how hard it is to find one. Everybody everybody got a therapist now, it seems like, nowadays. So get one. And, and if you're one of those people who are like, well, my life is good, everything's good, I don't need a therapist, that's why now is the time to get one. Because when life hits the fan, and, and inevitably it does, right, uh, that's not the time to look for a therapist. Because it takes time to build rapport, to connect them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's going to, who's going to like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Nick Mayhew, who is a four-time Olympic medalist in Tokyo. That's right, Tokyo three golds, one silver. He played college in soccer. And you're like, well, why you got this dude on a podcast? Because he also struggles with cerebral palsy, palsy, which I really don't know anything about, which is why I also stumbled through the words. Uh, but we have so much more to his story. Let's get into it with Nick Mayhew. Thank you for joining us, brother. Hey, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I like to ask my guests, you know, it, right off the bat, what got you out of bed this morning? Uh, pretty much the same thing that's been getting me out of bed, you know, uh, since I was 14. Um, you know, I decided that I, uh, you know, wanted a better life for myself. I wanted to prove my doctors wrong, prove myself right. And it's been no different, you know, every every day since, you know, the darkest time of my life started. So talk to us about cerebral palsy. I have really no idea what this is because it because there's Mm -hmm. a wide range of symptoms that that come with this so what's your experience of it and then what's the broader spectrum of it yes sir so that's actually i'm glad that you said that the wide range of it because that's exactly you know what i will describe it as you know it's a very wide range uh disability and you know for somebody that hears the word cerebral palsy, they immediately think, or if they Google it, they'll see somebody in a wheelchair or they'll see someone with a crooked wrist or their arm. Um, 
but it's such a wide range disability. And I have such a mild form that, you know, you'll see me walking down the street or you'll see me running or competing, you know, in the Olympics or anything. And you'll be like, Hey, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that kid. Uh, you know, that I don't see anything wrong. So there must not be anything wrong. And I, I sort of say it's an, uh, I have an invisible disability because it's not, you know, noticeable to the naked eye, but um C- cp or cerebral palsy is a uh, congenital disorder um or neurological uh disorder of movement muscle tone or posture and it's basically stems from abnormal brain development often before birth in utero so um basically i had a stroke in utero um before i was born and if you actually look at an mri of my brain that i have um I actually made my own merchandise and uh, the t-shirts and my hoodies just have my MRI on the back of it because it's just so insane to see there's an actual golf ball sized hole on the right side of my brain. And that just never developed. That was a um, reaction from the stroke that I had in utero. So basically that hole and what that part of my brain would control on my left side um, just never developed. So uh, you know, my right side is as normal as can be. And physically, um, you know, I, there's nothing wrong. Um, but on my left side, you know, the fine motor skills, um, or little nerves, you know, range of motion, things that I try to do on my left side just isn't as up to par as my right, you know, and it's not noticeable. And I've been working my entire life every single day, you know, of my entire life, my try to make it look as normal and fluid and, you know, as able-bodied as possible. Um, and I've done, you know, a pretty good job and that's kind of kudos to, you know, my, uh, my family and, and, you know, myself, uh, you know, to get to this point to try to make it look as normal, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, CP is, CP is definitely something that it took me a while to accept. Um, like I said, you know, I was, I was diagnosed late at 14 years old. And, you know, at the beginning of my diagnosis, you know, I was at the peak of my soccer career, you know, I was just entering. um, I was a freshman in high school being recruited by every D1 top college that you could think of, Um, you know, and I remember going home and, you know, being talking to my mom, she went to the University of Maryland all the way in on the East Coast, and that's where I wanted to go. And she, uh, uh, I started getting recruited by them. And that's where I wanted to go. And I remember getting home being like, you know what, like, mom, I got it, you know, I'm gonna go to college, play, go pro, you know, I got us, we're good. And then um, that's when I had my seizure and, and was rushed to the, to the hospital and, you know, to look my neurologist in the face and have her look at me and tell me, Nick, you'll never be able to play soccer again, um, you know, broke my heart. And so that's kind of what stemmed, you know, everything and, and what really capped off and, and started this whole cerebral palsy journey that I've been on, you know, for the last 12, almost 13 years now. You talked about it being an invisible disability. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when I think about what your experience has been, I always think about like how others might look at you or, you know, someone with, a, with cerebral palsy, but also realize that even within the, in the community of other people who have cerebral palsy, there's a, I don't want to say a pecking order, but do you find that other people with cerebral palsy who have a more severe uh, experience of it. Like there's a, a separation between you two. Is there, do you understand the question I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
see that's where that's where it gets kind of tricky because on the heavier side and the more severe cases of cerebral palsy those those sort of captured to a wheelchair or have some uh, a mental disorder as well um, due to the damage to their brain um, you know someone like that that I, I mean I've met numerous people and you know uh, I mean I couldn't even tell you how many people I've met that have had CP or people that reach out but um, it, it's sort of there is sort of a pecking order and there is a sort of understanding of like Hey, like our, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten in a lot of where people will kind of hit me up, not necessarily people that have cerebral palsy because and within that community, we under, they understand, um, they have a better understanding of like that they are a more severe case, you know, they, they might have something else wrong with them. And, you know, I, obviously they look at my MRI, they understand my diagnosis. They understand, you know, the symptoms that I described and the experiences that I, that I say that I've gone through and they get it because they've been there too. And, you know, it, it's a lot more of an overwhelming response of support and people that reach out to me and they say, you know, uh, you know, I, I have the same symptoms as you do. You know, do you think I have cerebral palsy or, you know, I, I felt like this my entire life. And the, the craziest thing for me are parents of kids that have cerebral palsy who will reach out to me and ask questions about, you know, what my parents you know, did when I was little, what they experienced or what they picked up on, or, Hey, you know, my kid is, you know, a couple months old and, uh, they're favoring, you know, this hand and they won't pick up anything with their left hand and, and something like that. And I sort of will try to, to navigate that conversation and give them advice to the best of my ability. But at the end of the day, I'm not a doctor and I can only speak on my experience. So there is sort of a pecking order and people do tend to get upset, but it's, it, it's not from a sense of, not believing or not understanding it's sort of just a you know we want to know more because you look so normal and you act so normal and you've been able to do all these things and it's sort of i'm the first person that they see or meet of that sort of order in that pecking order if that makes sense and then they then they're introduced to this entire world of you know i compete every athlete that i compete against has the same severity of disability that i have and then they're like, oh, dang, I didn't even know, you know, this was even a thing, which is the craziest thing to me. So I do get a lot of negativity, but uh, yeah, but sort of, you know, on the contrary, it's a lot more support and just the conversation of disability continues, which is the coolest thing of it. So being diagnosed at age 14, I imagine it was a mix of emotions, as you shared, mm-hmm. was one of the emotions a relief and I'm asking that because not being diagnosed up to that point and having it did it did it make things did things make sense that didn't make sense up until that point for you in terms of why my left side is doing this Mm -hmm. when my right side is doing that was there Mm -hmm. that like oh okay now it all makes sense Mm -hmm. absolutely you couldn't I couldn't say any better man I mean it literally I'll never forget it because it, I remember growing up and at a very young age, I, you know, I, I felt like my left side was different than my right. And I couldn't explain it. You know, I was a kid. I didn't understand. I wasn't, you know, educated in obviously anything medically like that. And I could just describe it as, you know, hitting your funny bone and getting that tingling sensation that you feel along uh, your arm. 
that's what my entire left side felt like from when I was, you know, the, as long as I could remember it, but it was a little more dull than that. And little things like, um, tying my shoes or I would use to lock myself in my room and walk back and forth and teach myself how to walk without a limp in my left leg. Um, and so, you know, getting out of bed this morning, you think of, you know, getting up, going to the bathroom, going to get, make yourself some breakfast, get a cup of coffee. I think about taking that first step out of bed and lifting my left leg higher than my right. So I don't trip on my way to the bathroom and trip on my way to getting that cup of coffee. And that's something I experienced since, you know, the last I can remember. And, you know, in, in elementary school, it was really tough because we had computer classes where they taught us how to type correctly. And I would fail those classes in those little computer programs because I couldn't place my, my left fingers on the correct keys and type as you're quote unquote supposed to type or the recorder in music class, the little plastic flute looking thing. I actually failed that <laughs> in, in elementary school because no matter how hard I pushed on the, the openings in the recorder with my left hand, I could not feel it. And I remember after class one day, my teacher taking me to the principal's office and I was a class clown. I, you know, I joked a lot and, you know, uh, like to make people laugh and be the center of attention. And I was just, that's the type of kid I was in school. And I remember she took me to the principal's office and said, Nick, I just need you to, to play me this one, this one song or do this and, tell, and show me that you can, because if you don't, you're going to fail. And I remember sitting there and pushing so hard on the, on the recorder and to where I had an indentation on all four of my, of my fingers on my left hand. And I said, you guys see those indentations, but I can't feel those. And I don't know why. And they thought I was joking and called my parents and, and, you know, I got in trouble because of it. I failed the recorder. And so it was sort of just, I grew up and people just not really believing or understanding. And it got really, really frustrating to a point where I just said, all right, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to put my head down, have a chip on my shoulder. You know, it's really pissing me off that nobody's understanding. No one's trusting this little kid and complaining about these things. And doctors would always say, you know, it's just your weaker side, your right hand dominant, your right foot dominant. You're obviously very athletic, you know, playing soccer and, uh, and doing the things that you're doing. You're able to do these things, but it's just weaker on your left side. It's all right. You're fine. And then, so I just sort of had a hunch in the back of my mind. I could always just sense and feel that there was something more to that. And I always knew that it was, it would come out sooner or later medically. And so, you know, I just kept my mouth shut because if I heard somebody say no one more time, I knew I was going to lose it. And it wasn't until I was 14, I remember sitting in that office and my doctor pulling out my MRI, putting it on that big, bright um, board and, and showed the, the dead spot. And she said, you know, that's what we call a dead spot. Um, we're not yet sure exactly what it's from, but it's, off, it's probably from a stroke in utero, which then would diagnose you with uh, cerebral palsy. And, um, you know, I remember looking at my mom to my right and my dad to my left. And being like, hey, like, you guys believe me now? Like, <laughs> like all the dots started to connect. And that was kind of the, the sense of relief. And I kind of was given an explanation to what I was feeling for the last 14 years of my life. And it was just a big sigh of relief. But then that was very short-lived because then the words out of her mouth next were earth-shattering, you know, flipped my world upside down. And, and you know, it was the start of a downward spiral that, you know, uh, I don't think at 14, anybody would be ready for. So before we get into that downward spiral, the hole in the brain, the dead mm -hmm. spot, there's so much talk about neuroplasticity and, and reconnecting neurons. 
are there exercises or things that you do to kind of fill that hole or to build connections or just to keep the connections that you do have? Are you doing like contralateral training? Like what mm-hmm. are the things you're doing for your brain, if anything? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I've actually never been asked that question before. That's, I'm glad that you asked that. Um, but yes, there's not, there's nothing, there hasn't been anything that I've specifically worked um, or gone to a physical therapy rehab, rehab center or something like that and worked with uh, specific doctors for those finite neurons or, or something like that. But there are things that I've worked with coaches, um, whether it be soccer or, um, uh, or my track coaches or just physical therapy coaches, just in general, um, in a general sense of relating it to sports. So what I, so what I then do, and, and it's very, it's very interesting. You bring that up because, because of the size of the dead spot on my, on the, on the right side of my brain, the, the, it's impossible for all of those neurons for everything in my brain to then be reconnected or to grow or for me to gain that ability to begin with, because it, it's not something I lost. I didn't have, you know, I, I wasn't born quote unquote normal and then went through a traumatic experience. And then now it's a, it's a process of rehabbing to then getting back to that point or then passing that and becoming stronger in that sense. It's a, I've never had this and there's no way for me to develop it because my brain was stopped cut short from developing fully. And um, so it's a matter of just compensating and working around that and having the rest of my brain adapt and compensate for the things that I necessarily don't have. So uh, specific things that I work with, I guess, um, sport related are my reaction time or, um, you know, the separation between my fingers and my toes because your, your fingers and your toes are connected. So if I, if I separate my fingers, I can separate my toes easier because the brain is trying to use um, the same thing to do both. And it's very easier to do both at one time than do one or the other. Um, and it's little things like that. So I will often do like little exercises of literally, I'll just sit. I remember growing up and I used to sit with my coaches and we would sit there uh, or I'd be in class and I would just sit there and just try to spread out my toes and, and tighten them and spread out my toes and tighten them, spread out my fingers and close them, spread out my fingers and close them. And I would just do those little things or count one, two, three, four, five with my fingers because I can't control the third to the to my middle finger to my pinky on my left hand individually. And they just do them together. They're just like three, one, one finger in three, which is really interesting. Um, so it's little things like that. And especially when it's come to sprinting, um, whether I, I'll hold up the pen and drop the pen and then close my eyes and react to the to the sound off of it and just move my left arm because my right arm can move it as quickly as it, as it wants to, but my left arm, I'll have to tell myself to throw it as high as I can just to get it to where it needs to be when I'm running certain things like that. And it's really interesting and little things that I don't think a lot of other athletes have to deal with, or even think about training because they um, see it as, you know, just a tedious, boring thing. But those are the little things that I will spend hours upon hours in, in doing in training. Um, to, to, you know, separate myself from, from those other athletes. Well, I know you're also a, a huge video game player. First of all, what's your video <laughs> game? And does, do you find that video games help with the cerebral palsy because you are having to use both hands at the same time? Yeah. It's, um, I love, see, that's the thing. When, when, 
when Fortnite was at was at its peak back in college, I'll, I'll like there's nothing I'll ever experience like you know that first beginning stages of Fortnite. That was definitely a lot of fun. But then I got super super heavy into Call of Duty, uh, and my friends and I, you know, would just get on there and just wreck people, and that was just a lot of fun. And I, you know, I'm friends with a couple of streamers, and we would we would hop on Fortnite and Call of Duty, and people that do that do that type of stuff for a living and they are different um and so having to try to keep up with them is is uh it's a task within its own right and then you know having me hold a controller and be able to use you know my entire right hand but then i only have to use my my left uh pointer finger in my left thumb it, it's sort of hard and you know they have the paddles on the back of their controllers and doing a bunch of stuff but you know, I love I love video games. That's something that uh, I, I do almost every day in any of my free time when I'm done training to, you know, stay connected with my friends that, you know, live across the country or, or overseas and such. But, you know, that 2K, FIFA, Madden, uh, I love I love video games. That's just this. Uh, it just makes me feel more normal. You know, I'm able to adapt and learn how to hold a controller um and you know it's funny because i'll hold a ps4 controller or a ps5 controller differently than i'll hold an xbox controller because they're different sizes or i can't really play or i'll play pc games with a controller because i can't use a keyboard and mouse individually like like other uh people can so it's it's different and it's it's more so of a task but it's it's fun to see myself sort of try to adapt and compensate and learn how to do something that comes so naturally to everybody else. How does this affect your sleep at all? If you know, we're talking, we're still talking about left side versus right side. Do you find you have to sleep on one side versus the other? Do you, are you sleeping on your back? Are there adaptations for that, especially training for sports and helping you recover? Mm-hmm. That's that's. Uh, I've I've always had trouble sleeping, um, and I don't know if it's a direct correlation to my brain itself but the traumatic experience that i had when i was 14 that's sort of what and even nowadays um is what caused it there's not necessarily a physical side that i prefer to sleep on one over the other um i do find it oftentimes that my right my left arm will fall asleep quicker and i'll get that tingling sensation you know a hundred times harder if i if i lay on it a lot so i i toss and turn and try to get comfortable a lot more and it's it's sort of frustrating and uh, you know uh any of my exes can tell you how how frustrated they get how much i try to move trying to get comfy or anything maybe that's why i'm still single shit but um but it's it, it's funny because it's more so of a mental thing than it is physical and you know we'll, we'll get into that experience but i remember the 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 morning that i had my seizure i woke up out of a dead sleep and you know and then it everything happened you know the room was spinning and all that all those things started to happen until i blacked out and started to to have a seizure and so it's more so of a mental thing now to where i'm laying in bed and it's hard for me to fall asleep because i'm scared that if i fall asleep you know and i close my eyes and i go to sleep i'll wake up and i'll have another seizure so it's kind of just a trust that it's not going to happen and and that's sort of created this sort of mental block of you know if you fall asleep you're going to have another seizure when you wake up so you better be careful and so it kind of sucks in that respect but there's nothing really physical that i found i find better sleeping on one side or the other it's way more mental than it is physical 
So talk to us about the downward spiral. You're 14 years old. You're, you've been an athlete. You identify as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And now you've been diagnosed with CP. Be- before we talk about your downward spiral, how did you feel like your parents responded to that? Were they supportive? Was it like, you'll get over it? Like, what, what was that vibe? How did that change the, the energy? Um, they were definitely uh definitely supportive for sure um you know i think it's very very scary as you know uh to have gone through it myself and to understand it from my perspective i mean i can't possibly understand it from a parent's perspective um until i am a parent and i've sat down and i've had conversations with my parents before you know as i've gotten a lot older and matured more and been able to sit down and have those mature conversations of hey you know, what were you guys going through? Or can you talk me through this? So then, you know, when I, you know, speak to other parents, I have a better understanding. And they are just as honest with me as possible. And they say, you know, we were scared. You know, we we didn't know how to handle it. We didn't, you know, understand really what was going, what was going on, what it meant, um, you know, what CP was. You know, the, the doctors at that time had told them that, you know, I could also have so many other complications and, um, and, you know, this could be related to other things, uh, that are way more detrimental and, uh, you know, life threatening possibly. Uh, and, you know, they were scared that if I got hit in the head while playing soccer, if I got hit in the head, you know, playing sports at all, that, you know, I could, if I get hit in the right spot at the right time, uh, in that, on that right side, you know, I could be dead. And so those were things that they were thinking about, but they were always, always supportive. And it was never a sense of, they didn't necessarily quote unquote believe me, but I was such a hyperactive kid and so optimistic and just the a kid that they had raised in such a, in such a way that they didn't see enough for them to see, to go out of their way to be like, Hey, we think that this might be something wrong. We're going to take you to a doctor or a specialist to see, you know, because I, I made everything look so normal and that's just the way that I was. I, I, you know, I tried to hide everything and I kept it to myself for as long as I could. And even after my diagnosis, um, you know, I told my parents, I remember, you know, getting home and uh, asking them to keep it to themselves. And there were, there were some of my best friends that never uh, didn't know. Um, there were people in our family that didn't know. And I just didn't want anybody to know until I was, I was ready to, you know, let everybody know. Cause I knew it would come out. I knew that I was going to go on and, and, you know, prove my doctors wrong. And I knew I was always going to be a professional athlete and I just wanted to keep it to myself until that time. And they respected that. And they were, they've been with me every step of the way. Um, they're two of my biggest supporters along with my brother, who's my best friend and one of my coaches. Um, and I couldn't have, I couldn't ask for, you know, a better support system, but th- there was definitely a hard time of where they were sort of working it out themselves because it's very hard then as a parent you know from my brother who's five and a half years older than me never really to have gone through something or had these health issues or something like this to this magnitude to then have you know your youngest your baby of the family you know the the other one to then have all these things and for you to just kind of navigate through it there's, I don't think there really is a right way. And they, and they tried to do the best that they could. And I think that they did a very good job. Uh, But they were always supportive. Always. So talk to me, you know, before we started this interview, we were talking about 
how addiction runs in your family and mm-hmm. how the role that Percocet played in your life. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I was actually, um, so after I was diagnosed uh, at 14, you know, and I was sidelined from soccer for, you know, almost six months, you know, at that time, you know, like I said, I was being recruited. I was on cloud nine for a 14 year old, you know, I, I was being recruited, you know, all my best friends were playing at the top, you know, academies in the, in the country. And, you know, we're on this right path to, you know, do all this, all this together and, uh, you know, go pro, we we're going to do it. And, you know, for then to, you know, have be on cloud nine one day and rock bottom the next for anybody is hard to deal with. But for a 14 year old who can't see himself doing anything other than playing soccer or being a professional athlete, it was a lot, lot worse. And I had no idea how to deal with it. And I spent, you know, the next three, you know, two and a half, three years of my life working my butt off to try to get myself back to that stature that I was, you know, every college that I was getting recruited by dropped me. Um, you know, the academy team that I was playing with at the time uh, dropped me because at the end of the day, it's a business. And I understood that it just sucked. Um, and so, you know, having going to rehab and trying to figure all these things out um, physically and mentally, uh, it, it was really, really tough. And then I remember being, I was a senior in high school and, uh, I finally found a college, uh, to give a chance to, you know, to give me a chance and take a shot with me. And I, uh, had just committed to them verbally and was just about to sign. And in my last high school game, uh, I shattered my collarbone and my, my college found out, took away my scholarship. And so it was just sort of like, you know, I built myself up back to this point and then boom, you know, for that to be taken away rock bottom again. And, you know, they called me and said, you know, we're going to give your scholarship to somebody else. You know, if you still want to come, you'll be considered a walk on. And uh, and that's how it's going to go. And so that was at my surgery that I was introduced to Percocet. And it, I went on to for the next, uh, you know, I don't know, however long it was. It was a very brief time, but it was something that was very pivotal in my life because of what my dad and my mom had then spoke to me about and introduced me to because it got to a point where I would, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't sleep. I would do nothing but just sit there and be in my sling and be in so much pain. And then, you know, look to Percocet and think about all the problems that I had, you know, all these things that I'd went through, I'd solve everything in my head. And then I'd come down from that and I'd be frustrated again. I'd be in pain again. And then I'd revert right back to Percocet. It became this cycle of Percocet was the only outlet that I had that I could turn to, to think about all the problems that I had, feel good about everything, get an answer for everything, be happy. And then as soon as that wore off, I was unhappy again. And so I, it's the only thing that I really look towards in that time period of my life to really help me. And it got to the point where I got through so many uh, I got through an entire bottle, entire, you know, three months worth in a matter of less than a couple of weeks. And then I would go to my mom and be like, Hey, you know, I, I we need to go to the doctor. I need, I need, I need more. And we'd go to, and she didn't really understand. She wasn't paying attention. I was navigating it very sneakily. And, and, you know, the way that somebody does that's addicted to something that they don't know they're addicted to. And so I would get, you know, another supply and then I would, you know, uh, try to taper it to where it didn't look suspicious. And then I would hide half the bottle and, you know, go to a doctor 
uh, at school and, and, you know, talk to, talk to them and be like, Hey, you know, is there any way I can get something else? And then they would call my mom and then they would, you know, call my dad. And so I would get more and more to where I had, you know, three, four or five different bottles and I had the stash of everything. And then until one day my dad found, uh, found all the bottles and, you know, flipped the switch and I'll never forget it. And he, uh, he made me take off my sling and, um, it sat me down and and told me about, you know, the addiction that runs in our family and told me how scary it was. The things that he's personally been through, you know, the things that my mom has seen and, and, and been through and, um, and introduced me to things that I never really knew. And, and he, you know, sort of had a little intervention, just us two, you know, father and son. And he, he was like, look, like you, you can't do this. You know, eh, we're going to get this right. You know, just be honest with me. What do you need? What can I do? We'll get you the help that you need. And it's fine. You know, it's just, just talk to me, just be open, be honest. What's up? And he took off my sling <laughs> and uh, being the father and disinflating me, you know, in the only way that he knew how he, he made me, put my left arm which was the not broken one and he made me unscrew all the bottles with my right hand hold it up as high as i could with my collarbone having just had surgery you know a month prior <laughs> and made me lift it up as high as i could and turn it over and pour them all out in the toilet and flush every single one each bottle one by one and you know as painful as that was as as you know as much pain and hard it was for me i knew you know, in the back of my mind that it was the right thing to do. And it was, it got to a point where, you know, I, I, I needed somebody to step in and it was really tough. And ever since then, you know, I've sort of been careful with things like that, um, you know, given the surgeries I've gone through and, and things I've experienced. So, you know, it was just, it, it, it was something that I could lean on because I felt hopeless. I felt, you know, very sad for myself. I felt very, you know, empty. And that was the only thing that I could really turn to at that time period in my life of, you know, this feels good. I solved everything. I feel happy for once, once again, and then it would wear off and I'll go right back to it. And, you know, it got to be a very hard cycle. And I'm very, very lucky to have someone that loves me enough to really go out of their way to do something about it before it got any worse. So what was the step after pouring it all out like first of all that sounds so painful I, I can just imagine how painful that was physically <laughs> for you to have to unscrew it and pour it down the toilet yeah. um but it, what what were the, some of the steps after when we talk about addiction you know there's so many 12-step programs and getting therapy and relapsing was yeah. it as clear-cut as you dumping the the pills down the, the drain and then that was it or were there a few other steps after that? Yeah, actually, um, I was living in Virginia at the time with my mom. My parents are divorced. Um, they have a very uh, good relationship now. Wasn't always like that <laughs> growing up. Um, but they got divorced when I was very young, uh, went their separate ways. But I've always been there for me, my brother. And so I grew up with me, my mom, and my brother, single mom, uh, townhouse in, in Virginia, right outside D.C., um, and it was us three. And then my dad, you know, had his girlfriend, ha had a girlfriend who's now, you know, a second mom to me. She's, you know, she's, she's awesome. And her and my mom have a good relationship, but he lived elsewhere. Um, and at the time I was living with my mom uh, when that all happened and I was just about to go into college. And so I had actually had a whole, had the whole summer um, to, to figure it all out and try to do what was best for me to get my head right, my body right. 
uh, to then going into college and proving myself, you know, once again, uh, you know, one in, in university that I can go and be, you know, one of the first people in my family to hopefully graduate. And then two, you know, uh, within sports to prove that I'm not a walk-on, to prove that I deserve this this scholarship that I was once presented and, and was taken away from me. Um, and, you know, and then my senior year in high school, that happened. And then my dad confronted me all that. And he was like, you know what, you're coming to live with me. And so that was the next step. He, uh, I, I went and I lived with him over the entire summer, uh, which was like three and a half, four months. And we just, we just worked through it together. Uh, my, my, my uh, stepmom's a nurse. Um, so she understood, uh, she had seen a couple, she had seen obviously and worked with stuff like that. Um, my dad had understood it from his past experiences in life and, you know, and things that he's experienced. And so we just sort of worked through it together. I got, you know, I started going to therapy, um, a lot, a lot more seriously, I would say. Um, and I started to take it a lot more serious and understood. And I just kind of just worked on myself mentally. Um, and trying to understand, you know, who I was at that time, you know, who I wanted to be, what I needed to do. And I really just leaned on, you know, on my dad and my family, my mom, my brother, and just people that, you know, I knew that loved me for me and knew that, you know, regardless of if I couldn't go on and be a professional athlete, if I couldn't, you know, graduate from college, if I couldn't do those things, regardless of what I did, they would still love me. I leaned on them and, you know, they, they really helped me you know, get past that time period in my life and help me get to a, a good state physically and mentally to then go on and, and get back to real life. And um, it, it helps that my dad lived up in lived up in Delaware or lives up in Delaware. Uh, and then at the beach up there, a uh, small beach up there in Delaware. And uh, that's my that's my happy place, man, the beach. If I can be anywhere in the world, it's the beach. So I really, you know, just would wake up you know, go to the beach and just spend all day out there just thinking about stuff, talking to my dad, talking to my stepmom and my therapist and people like that just really helped guided me. And I was in such a comfortable uh, environment with, you know, the right people and the right atmosphere and environment that I was in to, you know, heal. Um, and, you know, both physically from my collarbone and mentally from everything else that I'd gone through. And it, it was, it wasn't easy by any means. And, it, it was funny because my dad, you know, was like, you know what, you're not getting anything else but, you know, Tylenol and Advil and, and things like that. So, you know, whatever you need, you know, we're we're going to make it work. Um, but that you're not getting anything else. We're not we're not testing that. We're not going to uh, messing with that. So, you know, it was tough and it wasn't easy by any means. But without them, I, you know, I would definitely would not be here today. That's for sure. In therapy, there's usually a focus, and I, we know so many people who struggle with CP, struggle with anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. What was something that really stuck with you or has stuck with you from therapy? Was there an exercise, a way that she, your therapist framed things? What was, it, what, was this, what was the thing that stuck or resonated with therapy? Um. Well, first, I mean, I think everybody, every, let's just, let's just talk about that. Everybody should be in therapy, whether you have something going on or not, everybody has something going on. And it, I think that it, it should be a normalized thing. I don't understand why people sort of feel, start to say like, oh, you're in therapy and then start to think of like, oh, something's wrong with you. If you're, if you're in therapy, like, no, everybody's messed up in their own way. Everything's been through things that no one else could probably imagine or and probably they could relate to and it should be a normal thing 
But for me, and, and it's so interesting to me to talk to other people, and you can sort of, when you speak to someone, you can sort of understand and see if they've been in therapy or the way that they speak about something. It, it's sort of what you're taught in therapy and of how to speak about something, how to think about something, if that makes sense. And some, and it's interesting to see what works with, for someone and what works for something else. And what worked for me personally was something that my, my therapist, um, and I now have, uh, I work with a hypnotherapist and we work a lot. Um, and I've been working with her for a couple of years. Um, and we started tailoring specifically more towards her and what we do uh, in my training towards Tokyo and how crazy that was, was something that has always worked with me that I remember when I was little, um, when I was in, you know, middle school and high school. And then now, you know, going through college and being, you know, 26 years old now, what always worked for me was referencing my younger self. What do I wish that I could tell my younger self or, you know, think about, where you were in that time period of life or, or think about something that made you feel that way when you were that age, what do you, what would you say to that, to that kid if you could go back and and speak to him, you know, or hug him or, you know, hold his hand going through that experience. What would you tell him and guide him through differently than you had to go through because you didn't have anybody else or you didn't have yourself and know now what you or know then what you do now. And that worked for me and that has continued to work for me, you know, uh, up until, you know, com- training and competing at the Olympics of, you know, that little athlete in me, um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's interesting and it's very eye-opening to understand and navigate how I, how, how I would speak to myself at different ages and what I would tell myself in different ages and different experiences that I go through rather than just, you know, throwing up my arms and be like that there's no point to that you know there's no reason to why i need to you know think back to what i was feeling it doesn't matter it happened get over it and it, it's crazy to then really focus on uh a, a particular memory or something that i went through or experienced and how that changes how i think about something going forward or then i catch myself um you know nowadays in a similar memory that I had fixated on and now I navigate it differently because I had already, I've already had that conversation with myself internally. So now I navigate it differently because of the conversation that you had, you know, it, it's very, it's very interesting to, to have that self-realization of like, after the fact being like, before I wouldn't have done that. But now that I did do that, I navigate it differently. And it's cool to have that realization. And that's something that always worked for me was, you know, talking to my younger self and speaking to myself a different way, in a different light, in a different tone, in a different demeanor, and then navigating through now future situations differently because of that conversation I had with myself, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I know some people, even my therapist said to keep a picture of my nine-year-old self with me at all times. Mm-hmm. And, and I have a friend who has a, a teddy bear that represents mm-hmm. his younger self. So yeah, that idea of referencing yourself definitely resonates with me. Mm-hmm. On your journey, you know, to getting four Olympic medals, uh, I heard you in an interview mention that you posted the records on your wall as a way to motivate you in tr- for track. What do you have on your wall now that's motivating you? <laughs> um. 
the same full records that I broke. Uh, you know, it, it's funny because as soon as I moved out here, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, before the Olympic Games in 2021. I, I had moved out there, lived there for two and a half years, uh, you know, training every day uh, and doing that full time before I went to Tokyo. And, and like you said, you know, I had in every wall of my house, uh, I had the world record that uh, that I wanted to break in every single one. I beat that time. I broke that record and I did that. And it's something that I've done since I was very, very little uh, is I'm very big into manifestation, visualization. And if you ever, if you watch me um, before every single race, there's something that you'll see. I don't know if uh, a lot of people will pick up on it, but before I start, I will audibly say to myself as I'm on the start line behind the blocks, and I'll repeat to myself, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. And if you, be- and because I genuinely believe it and I do that, not only in the finals, not only in the semifinals, the prelims, but I do that in training. I'll be, you can ask any of my coaches, I'll do that in training. I, and the people that I train with think I'm insane. They're like, dude, this guy's crazy. Why is he, you know, saying, talking to himself? Like this guy's a nut. Um, and it's just, I think everybody every elite athlete or successful person or somebody that goes on to do something extraordinary, even yourself in your own right, you probably have your own little, uh, little routines or ticks or something that you do that you, that somebody else might not do, but it's something you understand you have to do to be as successful as you are. And that's what I understood at a very young age. And, and, you know, even now, uh, whether it's in training or where I live now, the first thing I did when I moved to, to San Diego, uh, and started training here was I wrote down the the times that I wanted to run uh, in Paris in 24 at the next Olympic Games. And those four times are the times that I will run uh, in Paris in two years time. And it's something crazy uh, when I reference hypnotherapy and things like that, because my therapist didn't know that I did that. And every day in Tokyo, when I spoke to her, we would go through our races um, and what race I had, whether it's the 100 or the, the 200, 400, four by one relay, each one that I specifically had, we would go through the race step by step. You know, we, you, you warmed up, you got under, uh, you got under the call room. You're walking out now. You're, you're at the starting block. The gun goes off. You're 20 meters, 60 meters, a hundred meters. You cross the finish line. What's the, that's the time that you see on the clock. And then I would say the time and each time that I said, in that pre sort of visualization is the time that I ran in Tokyo, which I think is incredible. It is crazy. It's incredible to really tell yourself something over and over and over again, and you believe it and then it becomes true. And I think that's so powerful and so underestimated in, in life and in anything else. Um, and so to answer your question, those four times that I have now, are the same records I broke and four faster times that I will run in Paris in two years time. You talked earlier about the addiction to Percocet and how you were chasing that feeling of being happy. But Mm -hmm. then I was accompanied by sadness, um, you know, a feeling of hopelessness and and emptiness. When I talked to, I've talked to uh, other Olympic athletes, and they, they share the same thing after they win the gold medal, after the Olympics, because there's so much adrenaline, 
so much uh, expectation, anxiety. There's so much emotion leading up to it. And then you have, you know, the roar of the crowd and, and then nothing, right? Silence. Mm-hmm. How did you celebrate your win? It, that's, uh, that's the craziest thing to me is that, you know, a lot of people don't realize and what I think the general public don't realize is that Olympic athletes um, and sort of, I, I, it refers to any success in general, um, whether it be something, uh, you know, something that is important to you or something that is put on a national or international stage like that. Your body's not supposed to feel that natural euphoric high. That's not supposed to happen. And for you to go through that, for me to have gone through what I did and to be as proud as I am, I understand, you know, what I did and the significance of it. And I'm very proud of what I did. But it's funny that you say that because that's exactly how it really is. Cut everything else out of it. When I got home from Tokyo, I had never been as sad as I was the day after I woke up back in the U.S. because I had nothing to do. And I remember a specific moment sitting in my hotel room. I had just gotten back from Tokyo. My family flew out and surprised me, um, got back to my hotel. And I was, in, I was sitting in the room with my, with my family, my mom, my dad, my brother, you know, my sister-in-law and, and my friends people in my team, my coaches, teammates that I trained with for, for the last two and a half years, 10 hours a day, six days a week, the people that if I did not have them, I would not be one alive, two, I would not be here. And I would not have these medals, these world records, these accolades. And I remember being in that room and being so immediately happy and euphoric of like, everybody that I love is right here in this room. And my dad and my brother are playing with my medals, looking at everything, just like so engulfed in it all. And I remember my mom looked at me and she pulled me aside. She said, Nick, what's wrong? She was like, you, why aren't, like, why aren't you smiling? Like, what's going on? Talk to me. Like, there's something wrong. I can tell. And I looked at her and I said, mom, what the fuck do I do now? What, what now? And she, she looked at me and said, what do you mean? You know, you, like, you can do anything you want. You know, you did it. And I said, exactly. I did it. But now, you know, I, I now what? And it's such a, a weird realization of, you know, d- sadness and depression and sort of a sort of emptiness of, you know, I did do it. You're right. And I'm proud. I damn well am proud of what I did. I deserve this. Right. But I have all these things, you know, the, I have all these things and you know, whether it be financial or, you know, materialistic or whatever, like I have it, right? I got it right here. I'm holding the medal in my hand. But why am I not happy? Like, you know, like, what now? And that's such a crazy thing to realize and to really navigate. And then it's really just a, you restart, you know, you go back to why you started in the first place, you know, who, you know, who was there for you from the beginning? Who wants, you know, who, who who's the same people that if I hadn't even gone to college or graduated or played soccer in college or was recruited to play for the national team or anything like that, who would love me without all this? And it goes back right to that, you know, without these, without these Olympic medals, without these world records, without any of that, who, who's there for me and what makes me happy and what do I do now? And it, it, it's really tough. And it's something that I'm still, you know, what are we, you know, a little over a year 
you know, past it. And it's still something I'm working on. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, who I am, you know, outside of sport. Who, what do, you know, what do I love? What makes me truly happy, um, you know, uh, outside of Nick Mayhew, the athlete? You know, who's Nick Mayhew, the person? Who, uh, you know, what can I do? What do I love to do? What makes me happy outside of it all? And that's something I'm still figuring out. It's something that I'm still working on. I still get, you know, super, super depressed at times. And I have my bad days. I have so many more bad days, more negative days, and just sad, unhappy days. And I do positive. And that's just life. That's just something that you go through. And that's just something as an Olympic athlete, you know, I'm lucky enough to experience this. I'm lucky enough to have gone to you know, the games and won a gold medal, won a medal, no matter what color it is, you know, to have gone, represented my country, filled, being able to feel that sense of, you know, fulfillment in, in something that I worked so hard to do. A lot of Olympic athletes don't get that. A lot of athletes don't get that. They work their entire life for their one little window of opportunity. They go, they don't medal, and they go home with nothing. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, there, you know, the highest highs are always, always followed by the lowest lows more, more often than not. Um, you know, and it's been really tough, but it's something I continue to work on every single day, no matter, you know, what I've been through. It's something that I, that I am continuously always working on every single day. The high highs and the low lows are definitely a struggle. And I know for myself, meditation plays a role. And I read that meditation plays a role in, as a part of your morning routine. Can you talk to us about how you got into meditation and what that meditative practice looks like for you, Nick? Um, I, That's something that was introduced to me by, by my coach that I have now. Um, and he sort of just uh, we've been working together for, you know, almost, I think probably six or seven years now. And he introduced me to meditation as just a way of like getting myself ready for the, for the day, um, of, you know, getting in my, getting in the right mindset mentally and getting my body ready. You know, the first thing I'll do when I wake up is, you know, I try to stay off my phone uh, as much as possible. That's first and foremost, when I, wherever I get out of bed, um, you know, how much, uh, you know, negativity or, you know, sense of like social media and things like that. Just, you know, people are so addicted to it now. And even myself, I catch myself at times, you know, waking up and wanting to do it and just like stopping myself, you know, wanting to grab my phone and do that. The first thing I try to do is get up you know, walk around, get my body moving, get a glass of water, you know, get a cup of coffee and, uh, and then go throughout my day and I'll sit down and, you know, put on, you know, some music, whatever I'm feeling that day. And I try to just take at least, you know, 15, 30, 45 minutes to an hour. So maybe some days it's two hours, you know, some days I just get in it and just sit down and just try not to think, you know, just try to, focus in on myself, try to calm myself down and think about what I have to go throughout the day in certain periods of my meditation and just try to become, you know, whole in myself um, and try to be in con complete control of my entire physical and mental being. And, you know, no, so then when I'm done, you know, I feel ready for what's to come uh, throughout that day or that week or, you know, that competition, that race. 
or anything that I have to do, um, you know, it's it, it's become a pivotal and pivotal part of my life and a routine that I'll probably do, you know, for as long as I can. So are Oreo cookies a pivotal part of your life also? <laughs> they are, are the Are you sponsored part, by Oreo cookies? Man, I've been trying to get them for so long. That's the only thing. I remember I remember the first meeting I had with with my neurologist that I hired. Uh we have we have neurologists with uh, uh not neurologists, a nutritionist, excuse me. A nutritionist with Team USA and then I, you know, I, I have my own team that I work with now. And she said, you know, you all right, all right. So you know, in certain phases of, of your training, you get, you have your guilty pleasures and you know, I'll give you one thing. What's that one thing without her even finishing, man, cut her off Oreos. I will crush a bag of Oreos. Double stuffed Oreos are the only Oreos you should, you should be eating. You know, it's the perfect amount of stuff in ratio to cookie. Some might, some might say that it's too much, but I say that those people might be weak. You know, it's just incredible. Those Oreo cookies are something that are such a pivotal part of my life. I love those. I'm such a chocoholic. I love those things, man. And Nick, uh, last two questions. Is there a book that you are reading or have read that one you are like, I want to reread this or that you're like, man, I want to give, I want to gift this to everybody. It could be fiction, nonfiction. Um, actually, uh, Ooh, that's such a good question. My brother, my brother sends me books all the time. Um, there's one by Michael Jordan's uh, trainer that he had for a long time. And he speaks about um, what he went through training Michael and what oh, he went Relentless. through training Kobe. Relentless by Tim Grover. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Relentless, you know, from, uh, I think it's... Uh, something else there's another line to it it's something like from great to from good to great uh from good to great to unstoppable is what it's called and um you know i read that book i remember reading that book in in high school you know similar in similar time periods of when i was going through when i was at my lowest you know when i was at my lowest thinking um you know about the worst possible things and um i remember reading that book and thinking you know i can either I can either use my diagnosis, use my disability as a sense of sympathy to other people, or, and I can feel sorry for myself. I can give up, or I can use this to better my story. I can use this to motivate myself. I can use this to then, you know, you know, 10 years from now, be able to, to speak to a group of kids and, and motivate them and say, you know, I, I, I've been in your position. I understand what you're going through. And this is where I'm at now because of my mindset that I had. And I chose to do all these things. I chose to be relentless. I I was good at that time. I was good mentally. And, you know, I chose to be great. And then being great, I then understood what it took to be unstoppable. And I went to that extra measure. I, extra measure. I chose to do the things that other athletes, other people will not do. They seem to think that it's, you know, a waste of time, that it's too tedious, that it takes up too much time and energy it's a waste of you know waste of it all i could be doing something better and i do those little things and that's what separates me from from great from unstoppable from you know that separates a silver a bronze medal from a gold and a world record and that's something that i you know that book and um that that book definitely definitely holds its place um him and eric thomas eric thomas has, has has a couple of good books um about about mindset and what it takes to succeed as well. So those those two are probably 
two of the two of the best authors that I've read when it comes to self-help and motivation for sure. I appreciate you sharing that relentless by I think it's Tim Grover or mm-hmm. uh, uh last question I ask this question of all my guests. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Nick? That it's okay to not be okay. Um, you know, it's okay to feel what you're feeling right now. It's as scary as in a weird way, as comforting as it feels to have that feeling. You might be accustomed to it. You might be used to it. Um, it might be something that you're just, you know, it, it's become an everyday part of your life. But it's okay. You know, nobody's perfect. It's okay to not be okay. And as long as you understand that, that, that no one's expecting you to be perfect, no one's expecting you to be 100% good all the time, that that's not a realistic possibility that's not a possible lifestyle to live um and to not expect that from yourself and above anything else to just know that it will get better that as long as you're doing something no matter what it is that you're doing something each day or each week or each month or just something to better yourself or the position that you're in in life mentally, physically, or emotionally, no matter what it is, just do something. Just get out of bed. Get out of bed. You know, just just take a walk around your neighborhood, walk around your house, walk up and down the stairs, do something. Read one page, one sentence, just do something. As long as you're doing something to better yourself in the situation that you're in, it will always be better. And to just know that above anything else, that it's okay to not be okay. I think that that's so powerful and and such a realization that i had to understand and accept because i was trying to be perfect i was trying to you know be a perfect self without even understanding who i was or who i still am as a person i'm still working on it so you know it's okay to not be okay and to just to not give up i promise you it's okay and it will get better well i know that you're working on a book and that's going to detail, I'm sure, a lot of your imperfections. Uh, do you have a title for it, a release date, or is this something that's still in process? It's still in process. Um, you know, I have I have a couple of you know titles in in mind um, and, and things that you know I'm working on with my team. So uh, we want it. it it'll definitely 100 percent be out before the Olympic Games in in 24. Um, so pre summer of 24 is when it definitely will be out so you know it could be out you know next year could be out uh you know next summer next fall or or if not definitely you know the following the following summer at the latest um i can promise you that i love it thank you so much nick thank you so much listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in every single one of the show notes, whether you are in Sri Lanka, India, Budapest, Canada, South America, wherever you are, there are international phone numbers for you. You can talk, chat, text. You can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. 
Get your 10% off your first month, betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.